So in the period from 1865 for about the next 14 years, from 1865 to 1879, the emphasis for the Taranaki people was on keeping ourselves together, and of course Pariwaka was, pro was providing that. So Pariwaka grew from a small community to being a huge community. From 1866, leaders Te Orongomai and Tohukakahi established a village at the base of Mount Taranaki. Parihaka would become a thriving industry, with under 2,000 villages, the people grew crops and gardens and reared livestock. On the 5th of November 1881, on the orders of Native Minister John Bryce, the village of Parihaka was invaded by colonial troops. The pa was destroyed, women and children were raped, Te Whitsi and Tohu were arrested and sent to the South Island without trial. The pa was occupied by colonial troops for the next five years. November the 5th this year will mark 137 years since that day. Coming up we talk about Parihaka and join author Dr Rachel Buchanan. At Pariyaka, there was a drum that was used um, by the invading forces that um, is now in the hands of Pariyaka people. And Tiki Raumati, who um, he passed away recently, so he was the um, Anglican archdeacon. Mm. He, he talked about, we took, we took that drum and I'll say we turned it around and then we beat them out with peace and love. And we'll also feature an archival recording of the late Temeringa Hohaya, who talks about the history of Parihaka. Enga iwi enga mana he taumaha te kaupapa e hariakenei engari mautonu mai. That's coming up in this edition of Tiahika. I'm Justine Murray. Dr. Rachel Buchanan of Tiawa based her PhD thesis on the history of Parihaka. Today she lives in Melbourne and works as a writer and historian. Her book, Kotaranaki Te Maunga, is a melding of her own personal story and the narratives based on the atrocities of Parihaka. From her home across the ditch, Rachel talks about the book. Beginning here with her whakapapa. My people um, were part of the wave of um, hikoi or migrations really from Taranaki to um, what was Te Whanganui Atara back in the 1820s and 1830s. So um, there was a lot of um, intertribal fighting at that time, um, the musket wars. Many people, many of my whānau had to leave Taranaki so they were all living around Upunaki, um, Orimo Piko is the marae there and um, came down first of all to Waikanae and then ended up at um, Wellington, what's well, called Wellington now, it wasn't then. Uh, Te Aropa. So Te Aropa was destroyed actually by the construction of Taranaki Street, which is a bit of a, it's a bit ironic really. The road that destroyed that pa um, really commemorates forever uh, Taranaki and Taranaki iwi connections uh, in Wellington. So that pa was on the shores of the harbour. Um, Te Papa, the National Museum, is built on reclaimed land that would have been part of the um, part of that Papa Kainga there. So some of my relatives were living there, some stayed back in Taranaki. So really that's where my links are. The strongest um, iwi affiliations within Taranaki are to Taranaki iwi or Taranaki Tuturu and uh, Te Atiawa. 
Why did you decide to tackle this as part of your PhD? In, back in 2000, um, I went and saw that exhibition at City Gallery. It yes. was called uh, The Apariaka, The Art of Passive Resistance. And um, it was just a trip back home. It wasn't, that actually wasn't my area of research. I was going to do a PhD on um, modernism in Melbourne. That's what I was going to do it on, you know. Wow. I had a great supervisor who was an <laughs> urban historian, and I really liked working with him. And I was going to look at Melbourne's first high-rise. It sounds bizarre now. But I saw this exhibition, and <clears throat> I had a bit of a... Um, I got really blown away. I got really inspired, and that's when I started on... Uh, I, I got drawn in, I suppose, and I, I met with um, Kamering of Ohio and mm. um, Huirangi Waikere Peru, who I, I knew from when I was very young. I'd done an immersion language course with him at Kudatini back in the 1980s. So I met with both of those men and talked about what I wanted to do, and then um, I ploughed on. You know, some might say total stupidity, but doing it, I think because I was in Australia, I just, I just went, got on with it. Yeah. Right. So distance, in a way, put you outside ge- geographically, outside of Parihaka Pa, but still, obviously, you are a descendant. So, was that, um, I don't know, a good space to be in that you were away from the country? Back then, I was a different person. I mean, yes. I started my PhD and I, I got pregnant sort of right at the start of that process. So I was becoming a mother and. Having having children really changes how you think about life, and um, I was ignorant, and I just but I was determined, and I just sort of kept ploughing on. You know, I, I did the PhD, and and I don't. I'm not answering your question. I mean, because I can't say how would it have been different because yeah, I don't know right. what my parallel life would have been like. Did you have? You know, yeah. Did you have the likes of Temeringa and Huirangi at you know on the phone line when you needed them? No, so um, no, that would not be uh, basically that that kind of closer working relationship is something that's developed over time. Mm-hmm. For example, this book, um, I would say I've had a large amount of guidance from Mahara Okiroa. So, um, you know, committing a passed away in 2010. Um, and I did actually, yeah, I spoke with his son the other day, but no, I mean, I went to Pariaka and um, that was, you know, I, I've written about that that wasn't easy and I made plenty of mistakes. Um, That's okay. Mistakes are part of life. It's not like there's some person at Pariaka that is the person that can tell you everything that's exactly true. I mean, Mm. that's what's interesting about anything to do with our past is that there are lots of ways of thinking about it and there should be room for all sorts of voices. How do we, each of us, whether we're living in our place that we're from or whether we're living in a different part of NZ or whether like one in six Māori living in Australia, we have to come to terms and make our own peace with who we are, you know. So one of the big themes of this book is whakamā or shame, really exploring how powerful shame whakamā has been in terms of taranaki identity. And, uh, you know, by that I mean the shame of the total land loss, the, the language loss, the loss of so many leaders the death of so many people, the mm. starvation, you know, like so many, so many sayings in Waiata are, you know, morehu kurikai. It's not a metaphor. There was nothing to eat. That shame, people just felt, you know, my dad and my grandmothers, I think there was shame there for them. So part of the journey of my book has been for me saying, well, this is where I am. This is who I am. And moving past that whakamai. Part of your book um, 
One of the subtitles is Knowledge Beats Shame. Yeah, so um, this book actually grew from an essay that I wrote for Te Pauheri Kōrero, which is the Journal of the Māori Historians Association. And that essay was um, sparked by... Uh, so Te Meringohohaia asked me to take, on, to take on the work of looking at the many apologies that have been offered for Te Pahuatanga of Pariaka. And, you know, because I discovered there'd been one back in the early 1990s in the first, when the Waitangi Tribunal first sat at Pariaka. With no notice, the government decided they'd apologise <clears throat> and everyone was really shocked and taken aback and then really pissed off. So I started thinking about these apologies. What did they mean? Were they any good? What was going on there? And I looked at this waiata called um, Te Whakama, which was um, in the Ngāti Mutunga settlement. But there was an English translation that talked about things that happened in the old days were so terrible, mm. the shame is so great, it can never end. And the translation really sort of said the shame was felt by Pākehā or outsiders. Page 7 opens with, When I heard in 2017 that the New Zealand government was going up to Parihaka to apologise for the invasion and ransacking of the pa, my first thought was, oh no, not again. So that kind of mm. encapsulates um, your research into the many apologies that the government um, had made. So what, what made 2017 stand out f- for you? Were you here in, in the country? So my dad uh, was very, very sick with terminal cancer. It's, um I, I had this job in Melbourne curating the archive of Jermaine Greer. So um, some of your listeners may know she's a, uh, you know, an Australian-born woman who made her name by writing The Female Eunuch, so a really famous work of second-wave feminism. And, um, you know, it was a really demanding job. And yeah. I was just, I guess I was just lost, Justine. I didn't, I was just trying to get through, you know, like it was, um, Many people will know the experience of a parent, a loved one being very unwell mm. and you're in another country or you're in another city or you've got, it's really, it's really hard. And um, so I was just caught up in a swirl, you know, I was lost. Yes. And, um, and and the apology was just another thing. I mean, I hadn't really been thinking about Pariaka, I'd been thinking yeah. about Jermaine Greer. Yes. Uh, and and then the apology, and I thought, oh, that, that this apology, the 2017 one, was very carefully negotiated. I mean, there was a whole process that involved... So Taranaki, the Taranaki Iwi settlement, um, they walked... Those negotiators, Mahara Okiroa and Jamie Tuta, walked away from the table, and I talk in the book about, you know, Chris Finlayson was really furious about that, and they said, we're not... We're delaying our settlement. You need to speak directly to Pariaka. So it sort of became a settlement outside of a settlement, what happened there, that reconciliation ceremony... I mean, my, my personally, Justine, I don't really like apologies. I mean, I think, but I accept that um, that that was a really meaningful event. In 2017, the Crown apologised for the invasion and subsequent atrocities at Parihaka. Hepuanga Haimata is the reconciliation agreement between the Crown and Parihaka. It included the official apology, a $9 million compensation package and development initiatives with government agencies and local councils. This book is obviously through your lens. You offer up your personal life, your, you know, being hapu and having a family and your father, and it, it really comes through the book. I, I suppose I'm old enough now, I've got enough experience mm. that I just felt I'm just going to put it all out there. I'm going to use everything I've got, every every part of me, 
to to express what I want to express. I mean, I was saying last night to my my husband, um, you know, really when I was working on the book, I had I just I was just sitting in this in this room where I'm talking to you now, and I just didn't know what I was doing, and I just kept going. I worked every day. I was very consistent, even if I found it hard, which I did. Because in a way, the book was, for me, part of the mourning process to get over Dad. It was, And it was also offering, trying to offer him something back. You know, it was trying to say, well, this is a gift I'm giving him, even though he's passed on. But this interview is going to be played on Sunday. And Sunday morning is when we're unveiling uh, Dad's headstone. So he's, a, he's the first person to be buried at Opo, which is a Urupa that was given as part of the 2009 treaty settlement between um, the uh, Taranaki Whanui in Wellington and the Crown. Yes. So it's actually a really significant day for all of us. It's amazing that Dad's there. And um, there's a, I haven't actually seen um, the headstone, but it's going to talk about Taranaki, um, the Maunga. I just thought I've got nothing to lose. I don't even know if this will be published. So I'm just gonna yeah. I'm just gonna say what I wanna say. You know, I'm not working as an academic anymore. I wrote this, I was unemployed, I had no income, I just just went there. I was like, right, I don't know how this is gonna come together. It was expanding on an original essay and for me, you know, the decisions um I make are informed by all parts of my life, you know, what my kids are doing and what my history is and how I earn money, all of it mm. kind of comes together. And I know that I like, I enjoy reading something where I can feel the flesh and blood of the person who's written it. So, um, and I do think that he, in this book I have, you know, it's very well edited um, and I feel that I've been able to achieve some sort of balance between the personal and then, you know, an analysis as well. Um, but that's up to readers to decide. But I've certainly had some really cool responses and, and probably one of my favourite ones was a um, eight-page letter, handwritten letter by one of my relatives responding to the book. I just, you know, burst into tears when I read that because he's chosen to share quite a lot of, um, you know, wakapapa with me and some of his memories and he said the book spurred those memories. So for me, that's the ultimate validation, you know. It's the ultimate this relative said that his mother used to say, other tribes call us from Taranaki the dispossessed, to iwi, to iwi imurua, and then he just said, wear the name with pride. And I thought, yes, this, this is, when everything has been taken, how can you proceed forward? And I just have so much respect for, you know, the people living at Pariaka now and all my relatives who have, and my father, who have just kept proceeding forward even after losing so much. Kia ora, tēnei te mihi kia koe, Dr. Rachel Buchanan no Tiatiawa. And Rachel will be talking about the history of Parihaka alongside Mahara Okerua at the National Library in Wellington uh, on Monday the 5th of November. Not by wind ravaged, deep scarred, not by wind ravaged, nor rain, nor the brawling stream, Stripped of all save the brief finery of gorse and broom, and standing sentinel to your bleak loneliness, the tussock grass. Oh, voiceless land, let me echo your desolation. The mana of my house has fled, the marae is but a paddock of thistle. I come to you with a bitterness 
that only your dull folds can soothe. For I know, I know, my melancholy chance shall be lost to the wind shriek about the rotting eaves. Distribute my nakedness. Unadorned I come with no priceless offering of jade and bone curio. Yet to the wild berry shall I give a tart piquancy, enhance for a deathless space the fragile blush of Manuka. Oh, you shall bear all and not heed. In your huge compassion embrace those who know no feeling other than greed. Of this I lament my satisfaction, for it is as full as a beggar's cup. No less shall the dust of avaricious men succor exquisite blooms with moist lips parting to the morning sun. Pemiringa Hohaya is described as a pillar of Parihaka. In 2010, he died at the age of 58. An advocate for his people, he was at the helm of events such as the Parihaka Peace Festival and the exhibition Parihaka, the Art of Passive Resistance, held at City Gallery in Wellington in 2000. Thanks to Nataunga Sound and Vision, this next recording is from the 21st annual hui of Napuna Waihanga. So in the period from 1865, for about the next 14 years, from 1865 to 1879, the emphasis for the Taranaki people was on keeping ourselves together, and of course Parihaka was, pro- was providing that, So Parihaga grew from a small community to being a huge community and a movement that went outside of Taranaki to many, many tribes because other tribes were being affected in a similar way. And they were sending delegations of people here to live here. They were sending delegations of people to come here and attend the meetings and to hold discussions and to look for ways of strengthening our people and retaining what we had. So, so from 1865 to 1879 that's what the people did and they continued with a series of negotiations with the government to try and have the reserves created and Titopawaru was also a man committed to pacifism he also had been initiated into that kaupapa by Tuahomi and along with Tuiti and Tohu he was a very very important man as well he was regarded as a visionary person in his own right in the same way that they were. And he was from Ngāruahene, which is on our southern boundary here, the Ngāruahene people. During the 1870s, <coughs> Titokawaru began to realise that the reserves were not going to be created and his people were going to starve. Because what was happening was, as the surveyors came up from south, they would destroy the Māori communities. Survey lines and fences and so on would be just built right through communities. And the people would be just turned out of their land. So people were hungry, because how do you feed your children and your old people when that, thing, that is happening to you? Tito Wawaru knew that his people were actually going to physically starve to death. 
So he began a campaign, a very good one too, to bring the Taranaki people together and keep them united. And he made a big hikoi around Taranaki to do it. There were others in Taranaki who wanted to go to war again. And Titokawaru stopped them from doing it until he realised that his people were actually going to starve. Titokawaru drove his enemies right out of the area. What was once a wealthy farming region was feared by settlers and government. There were huge estates along the Taranaki Strip. Even the government didn't know what to do. The people had to constantly move, for they were constantly on a path of war. So at a place called Taurangaika in, in Ngaroru, at a place called Taurangaika, within a few hours, on the verge of another victory, and probably their final victory, Titukawaru's army disbanded. And Titukawaru, they all came away. Titukawaru went into hiding in the back of Taranaki here, in the area we call Ngati Maru. Went in there, the government didn't want to chase him because it's too dangerous up there. So they decided to let sleeping dogs lie and they left him there. And they concentrated their efforts on Parihaka. How to deal with the troublesome people at Parihaka. And Titukawaru rejoined the Parihaka movement again. He embraced the Parihaka teachings again and came back to Parihaka. And when that happened, the mana of Te and Tohu was dramatically increased. The reserves weren't created and then in 1879, that was when Tuiti and Tohu decided to actually launch intensive campaigns of resistance. That was when the ploughing started, the ploughing campaign started. Hundreds and hundreds of people were arrested and taken away to prisons. And then they started a fencing campaign and they just fenced all the roads off. They ploughed up all the roads. They ploughed up all the Pākehā farmers' farms. They ploughed up all their crops. They burned down all their hay barns but they never hurt anybody, except their feelings maybe. So that, that you know, so they, they did those two campaigns and blockades and so on. And that was why eventually in 1881, the government sent the army in here to destroy the place. When Pariaka was, was destroyed in 1881, where we are here, we're about four and a half miles inland from the sea in a direct line. We're about four and a half miles inland. And all the area between here and the sea was in cultivation, the whole of it. So that's the amount, that's, that gives you some idea of the amount of wealth in terms of using their hands and looking after the, the earth that was happening here. When Tuti and Tohu got back here, of course the whole place had been destroyed, but the people that were here had started to rebuild again. The other thing was this, is that in 1881, when they invaded Parihaka, and they built a fort up on that hill over there, which we call Te Pūrepo, where they put their cannons and they built a fort, they occupied that fort. Parihaka was under military occupation for five years. There were 79 soldiers and five officers here. So it wasn't just to go in and, you know, burn the place down and then go home. It wasn't just a matter of going in, raping a few women and killing all the stock and destroying the gardens. 
They stayed here for five years and continued to rape the women and continued to burn the gardens. That was recorded in 1994 from the 21st annual Hui of Napuna Waihanga. A special mention to Dr. Rachel Buchanan, the author of the book Kotaranaki Te Maunga. That's Tiahika for another week. Mehuki mai koto ate wiki etsu mai nei mauritu mauriora. Thank you.